So we are continuing in our series, The Eternal Word, Walking Through the Gospel of John. We're going to conclude chapter 7. We're going to get through chapter 7 here this morning. We're going to cover a big section of Scripture, 25 through 52. Uh, By God's grace, we'll be able to do that in a timely fashion. But I'm excited about having the Elevate students here for the Elevate Student Conference. They they met on Friday night, Saturday night, and they're here this morning, I think 60-plus students. And we had 17 of them, 9th or 10th grade girls, were in our house (laughs) Friday night and Saturday night. Uh, I I believe they were there. I slept most of the time that that they were there. Uh, But they they left early and got in late, and I know that they had a great time. Did you guys have a great time at, at the conference? Thank you to Pastor Dom and Jackie and his team and all those that helped, uh, all the leaders that helped to organize a conference like that. Uh, It is a blessing that we're able to continue to do things like that at Living Word. Amen. So we are uh, concluding chapter 7. We are continuing in this series. And I've titled the message this morning, Can This Be the Christ? Can This Be the Christ? Would you pray with me before we jump in? Father, we, we thank you this morning Um, for the privilege of exalting you, as Pastor Scott said, exalting Christ in the preaching of the word. Lord, it is your word that is life to us. It is your word that has the power to transform us, to conform us into the image of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that every life that is here, whether, whether they're a believer or they're a seeker or they're questioning, Lord, I pray that all of us, at the end of this message, Lord, would come to you and surrender to you with all that we are. And I pray this morning that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So count, countless hours of time, countless hours are used and dollars are spent in our life focusing on temporal things. Countless hours and dollars are used and spent, focused on things that are here now but will be gone tomorrow, focused on things that are temporary. And a lot of the things that we do are just kind of, uh, could be categorized as meaningless or trivial. Some of the things that we spend our time on, whether it's hobbies or habits or Whatever it may be, I I was looking at some different stats to kind of frame it for us. Our focus, all of us, it's me, it's you, it's all of us. We we, we have so many different temporal, temporary things that pull at our attention and our focus. One of them is the the movie business, the movie industry. In 2020, it was a $100 billion industry. Over $100 billion in money came in through the movie business, and a lot of that would would be, especially if we're talking about 2020, would be the streaming services, not necessarily going to movie theaters. I was at a movie theater yesterday with my eight-year-old daughter on a daddy-daughter date, watched the Minion movie, The Rise of Gru. So I spent an hour and 30 minutes watching a meaningless, pointless movie. But it was very meaningful because my little eight-year-old daughter is right there next to me. So I was, I was uh, killing two birds with one stone there. But she told me later, she said, Daddy, this was the best day ever. So it was worth it. Took her out to Chick-fil-A, ate some Christian chicken, and then we watched a movie about villainy. The streaming, the streaming services that are out there in 2020 was a $184 billion industry. $184 billion. How many of you didn't stream before 2020, but 2020 came and you subscribed to a streaming service? How about this one? On average, those who have smartphones, on average, we spend seven hours a day on our smartphones or on the internet. Seven hours a day. Do you want to kind of frame this a little bit different to help us understand this? This means that if you do the math, that's 100 days a year. 365 days a year, 100 of those days, on average, those with smartphones and internet access are spending 100 days a year on the internet. Social, social media is grouped into that. 
social media, internet, cell phone, wow. focusing on things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Now, obviously, the internet can be used for good, and obviously, there are things that we can do and in and, and, and research that I do for preparing this sermon. I'm using the internet, so it's not all bad. It's not all meaningless, but there are so many meaningless things that we do to occupy our time and our energy and And we live in a world in which people don't want to think about the eternal. They don't want to think about what is of of substance and eternal matters. And when we're thinking about Christ, we have so many people all around our world today that are not thinking about who Christ is. And there are many different views in our world today about who Christ is. Who is he? Did he really live? Did he really die? Did he really rise from the grave? And and what about him? What about his impact on human history? And people have different views about who Christ is. And in this text that we're going to look at in John 7, just to backtrack a little bit about where we were from last week, Jesus is in the temple. And this is where we're going to continue this, this conversation he's having with the religious leaders, but also the crowd that is beginning to gather. You know, wherever Jesus went, crowds gathered because of who he was and who he is. And so the crowd's beginning to gather, and there's a lot of clamor and noise going on in the temple. And so this, we're going to see kind of three different groups of people that are going to come to the surface as Jesus, he, he didn't go to the Feast of Booths. He didn't go into the public square to, to display his power as his brothers wanted him to. He went secretly into the temple. We saw that last week and began to teach, and the Pharisees began to question it. But now this, this conversation is going to continue, and we're going to see three groups that are going to surface, that are going to have conversations about Jesus. What is their view of Jesus? And the three groups would be this, the, the, the confused, then we have the second group, the convinced, and then the third group, the contrary, the confused, the convinced, and the contrary. We'll see these three groups of people in Chapter 7, verse 25 through 52. And what we're going to do is I'm not going to take the section from the beginning of verse 25 and go straight through through 52. We're going to look at the different groups. And we're going to look at the beginning section. We're going to look at the end section of these different groups. And right in the middle, when I conclude my sermon, in the middle, Christ is going to speak. Centering all around Christ, all revolving around Christ in the middle of the temple, in the middle of his teaching, are these groups. And at the end of this message, Christ is going to speak to all three of these groups as we look at the middle section when Christ cries out in the middle of the temple on the last day of the feast. The confused, the convinced, and the contrary, he cries out to them. The main point that we're going to see in this message is that there will always be varying views about who Jesus is. There will always be varying views. But Jesus makes it clear that there is living water for the thirsty. There is available living water for the thirsty. So let's look at the first group. First group would be this. First point. The confused question and debate. The confused question and debate. Let's look at, let's look at a couple of sections that, that, that demonstrate this, these groups of people that are in the temple and around the temple while Jesus is teaching. Let's look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, the Messiah? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and, and him you do not know. I, I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And skipping down to verse 40, here's a latter section of 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 this text that we're looking at. Here's some more confused people. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? Comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division, there was confusion, there was a debate, there was a division among the people over him. Some wanted to arrest him, but none laid hands on him. So again, the setting is the temple. Jesus is teaching. And you see confused people, people that are debating, is this the Christ? No, this can't be the Christ. And in these two sections, we see people who are confused and they're questioning, they're debating. There's a division that has risen up about who Christ is. 
And I think that's really true when you look at the entire life of Jesus when he walked the earth. There was always a debate. There was always seemed to be different groups of people. He was very polarizing. You either were for him or you were against him. And that number of people that were for him, it continually shrunk over the months and the three and a half years that he walked the earth. But there was always this debate. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? People were confused. And they debated. And really, so what are, the, what are the questions? What are they saying in this text that we just read? What are the confused questioning? What are they debating about? The first one is this, straightforward. Is not this man, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? That's verse 25. So the crowd is in the temple. Jesus is teaching. And what do they say? They're confused. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Who's the they that is seeking to kill Jesus? The Pharisees, the scribes, the the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. So you have the community of people around Jerusalem that's coming into the temple and they're looking and they're seeing and and they're thinking to themselves, wait a minute, this is the man that we've heard they want to kill. Why are they not doing anything about it? Why are they not stopping him? They're confused. The leaders, if they really were against Jesus, if they, they really didn't like the man, if they really thought he was a threat to Judaism, why are they not stopping him? They're They're confused. Why don't they arrest him? Here's a prime opportunity. He's speaking publicly. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? What's what's another question that they have or another confusion or a debate? Verse 27 and 28 says, but we know where this man comes from. So so, so they're questioning. They're saying, why don't they arrest this man? The leader is prime opportunity. He's speaking publicly. You have your chance. Get your hands on him. And then others in response to that say, Don't mess with that guy. We know where he's from. What does that mean? We know where he's from. That means that people knew his mother and his father. They knew Mary. They knew Joseph. We know where he's from. He's from Nazareth. You remember in the Gospels it was said of Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? We know where he's from. It's a a tone of kind of ridicule. It's, it's, It's a tone of like, he's nobody special. I don't know why the leaders are even worried about arresting him. We know where he's from. We know he's from that backwoods town of Nazareth. We know his his mom and we know his brothers. We know where he's from. What, What did Jesus say in response to them saying, we know where you're from. We know you. We know you. What did Jesus say? Look at 28. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. I'll give you that. Yeah, you you know the place of my birth and my raising, you know the place of my raising, you know my family, yeah, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and of him you do not know. I know him for I've come from him and he sent me. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, yeah, you may know the place where I was raised and you may know my mom and you may know my brothers, but you don't know me. I come from somewhere else before I came here. And where I came from is where God is and he sent me here. And you don't know him. You know, it's interesting. The text there says that Jesus proclaimed in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed. So I want you to get the picture here. Confusion, questioning, and debate. Why aren't they arresting him? Who is this man? Oh, we know who this man is. That's Mary's son. In the middle of that, it says Jesus proclaimed. The word proclaim there in the original language, it literally means shout. It means to yell. It means to shout. So get the picture. They're in the temple. Jesus is teaching. There's debate and confusion about who he is, who is Jesus, who is Jesus. Oh, we know him. We know him. No! You may know where my birthplace was. You may know who my family is, but you don't know me. He proclaimed, no, you, you don't know, you don't know, I come from somewhere else. He proclaimed, he says, no, you don't know me. You think you know me because you know my earthly family, but I have come from somewhere else before I came here. I've been sent here by someone you don't know. Wow. What is another confusion that they have? And this is an interesting confusion, Interesting debate. It it says there that they said, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Who was he? Who was, where was his lineage from? Tribe of Judah and the seed of David. So why are they confused? They shouldn't be confused. 
They should know. They could know. They could know and be assured and confirm that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And they could know and they could be assured through research that he's of the tribe of David. He's, he, he's of the lineage of David and the tribe of Judah. They could know, but why didn't they know? Why were they confused? Because their leaders had failed them. Because the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, they were against Jesus. And they would have had the information about where Jesus was and where he was from, but they were, they were not teaching the people properly because they were threatened by Jesus' power. So the confusion is not only general confusion, but the confusion is because leaders have failed the people that they were called to lead. So, 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 so there's always been questioning about Jesus. And these are, this is the first group of people, confused and questioning and debating. And people throughout history, since the birth of Christ, have debated about who he is. You know, even Jesus knew it. He knew that people debated about him. Do you remember in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples? Matthew 16, verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What do they say about me? What's the word on the street? What's the word on the street? What are they saying? And they said, well, well, well some say you're John the Baptist. Some, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Asking questions about Jesus. There was constant debate and questioning about Jesus. But you know what is amazing is that no matter how much questioning people did, sometimes there was never enough answers. There was never enough reality in front of them for people to to finally be convinced. And that's the next group we're going to get to, the the group that was convinced. But there are so many people that all they do is want to question. They want to question. They want to question. They want to debate. They want to question. They want to ignore the, the realities of who Christ is, the obvious realities. Have you ever had a conversation with a, a toddler who was hard to convince? I've, I've had conversations with a few toddlers in my life that lived in my home. And, and so you're willing to convince and co- convey some information to a toddler, maybe about a reality of a situation that's in front of them, or, or you're asking them to do something, you're telling them to, to do something. And what is a toddler going to say? Why? Okay, all right, three-year-old. Let me explain to you why. Okay. And you tell him, you explain to him. Why? 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 Or as, as my four-year-old Lincoln says, he doesn't use the word why now. He uses the word how. How? I tell him I'm going to go somewhere. How? And at first I thought he, meant he wanted to know how. So I would tell him, oh, well, we're going we're to get in the car and we're going to do this. How? <laughs> That's his way for asking why. Why? That's what toddlers do. It's endless questions. Why? Well, okay, I've, I've explained it to you. I've given you the obvious reality of the situation. Why? Why? Who is Jesus? Why? Why Jesus? What did he do? Who is he? Why? 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 You know, Paul the apostle ran into people that were good about questioning and debating, and they wanted to hear all the new philosophies and, and the new views that were out there about, about religion and God and this was Acts 17. Paul says he took, and they took him and brought him to the, Are- to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So they're ready to hear a new teaching. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Wow. There's always people, they want to hear a new, a new debate, a new argument. And they want to ignore the realities that are all around them. And what did Paul say? Well, how did Paul start to answer his question? He started, he started like this. He says, listen, the God who made the world and everything in it. He said, all you questioners, we're going to start with ultimate reality. You can know what is true. And you're debating and you're questioning, but let me start with the obvious reality that God is the creator of the universe. So some of you here today, you you may be in this first position. You're asking questions and you're debating who is Jesus. You're confused maybe. You've had some experiences in church that maybe were hurtful and and harmful and difficult. But you're here today and maybe you're questioning, you're debating, you're wondering. You know, the goal goal is, is that today that you would see who Christ is and that you would transition from a position of doubting and questioning and wondering and questioning and living in the realm of questions and that you would see the obvious of who Christ is. And that's the next group we're gonna look at. We're gonna look at the convinced. You have the confused, but then you have the convinced, and there, are, there were always 
these two groups of people, actually the, the three groups of people, but these two in particular, the confused and the convinced, there were some who, who debated about him, but there were those who could not ignore the reality of who he was. And, and this is our second group of people, the convinced, they state the obvious. They, the convinced state the obvious, the confused debate. But look back at the text, verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. Why did they believe in him? They said, when the Messiah, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? It's like, hello. Like, this guy is something different. He's not just your everyday guy. He's not just your everyday fisherman, woodworker. He's not just your everyday guru that people are following. Like, he's backing up his words. Did you, did you see the, the 12,000 that he fed? Did you see the multiple thousands of people that he fed? Did you, did you hear of the miracles and the lame man healed and the blind eyes opened? Did you, did you hear? Many believe because... They saw the signs. These are the convinced. And they state the obvious. Here's some more people that state the obvious. The officers. Then came to the chief priests. The chief priests had sent them to arrest Jesus. And we'll look at that later in this text. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers, they're, they're convinced. They said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? What are they saying there? They're saying, you need to listen to us. Have we been deceived as your leaders? Are we following him? And they're saying, yeah, but have you actually listened to him? Have you listened to him? But the crowd, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They said all these people who are clamoring to follow Jesus, they're accursed. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, you remember Nicodemus went at night? In John chapter 3, a Pharisee, he was one of them, and, said, and he said to them, does our law judge a man? Nicodemus is convinced. He's defending Jesus. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So deceiving. They know who Jesus is. And they don't want anyone to believe in him, no matter the signs and no matter the words. And what did Nicodemus say when he went to Jesus? He said, I, I want to know how you do all these things. You have to be from God with the works you're doing. And what did Jesus tell, Nic tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. You must be born again. So what, what were the obvious things that some people in the text declared, we, we, we've mentioned it, yet many believe because of the signs. Will, will he do more when the Messiah comes? Will he do more signs in this man? The obvious reality that was staring everyone in the face was that Jesus was not a normal man. He wasn't just a, a, a good rabbi who taught good. He was somebody different. And these people are convinced of that. What did John chapter 20 say is the purpose of, of the book? of John. John 20 says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And there are those that may be of the convinced crowd, they're, they're not there to conversion yet, to following Christ yet, but they are convinced that he is somebody special. And the goal is, is that they would believe that he is the Son of God. I love what John 21, 25 says, the end but the book of John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Wow. That's the first thing that was the obvious reality that the confused were ignoring, that the Pharisees were ignoring, the obvious reality of his signs. Now, what, what was another obvious reality of, of, of what Jesus was saying? And we talked about it earlier. It's the officers. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees and the scribes says, go arrest this man. The officers go, and Jesus was talking. And they got sucked in. You ever been in a conversation like that? Somebody is just so compelling and you hear them, and they're talking to you, and you're just like, whoa, I want to sit around and listen to this for a little bit. I, I, I pray that's what you do every Sunday when you hear me preach. <laughs> I pray that you're like, huh, let me hear. <laughs> right? But Jesus was not like me. 
He was not like the most gifted speaker that ever walked the earth. You know, all these mere men, he was God in the flesh. And when he spoke, it was something different. And I could picture it. The officers have been sent by the authorities to go arrest him. They're there to do a job. They walk up, and they're ready to arrest him, these big, burly guys. And they're coming, and they walk up, and they're just like, they just melt like butter. Oh, my goodness. Listen to this man. What was it that, that they heard? They heard his authority. His authority, the way he used it, was not like the Pharisees who wielded their authority with hypocrisy. He was true. He was genuine. His authority was clothed with compassion in his heart, his teaching. And they come back and say, why didn't you arrest him? And they said, you must not be listening to the man. You remember last week we looked at the two men, two, the two disciples, the unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection of Christ and they're confused, they're distraught and Jesus walks with them and he doesn't reveal himself to them until he sees them later and he reveals himself to them and, and they recalled what it was like as Jesus unpacked the scriptures, his commitment to the word of God, he unpacked the scriptures to them about the Messiah and how he was the Messiah. Do you remember what the text says, Luke 24, 32? They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Wow. Did not our hearts burn? Jesus was different. There were some people that were convinced. These officers were convinced. And there were some of the crowd that were convinced. Look at the signs. Look at his words. The convinced state the obvious. The confused are ignoring what is obvious. The Pharisees are ignoring what is obvious. The convinced state the obvious. You would have to be blind and hard-hearted to ignore the person and work of Christ if you walked the earth while he walked the earth. Jesus is no ordinary man. His impact on human history is a testament to the nature of who he is. The, the obvious cannot be ignored. The obvious cannot be ignored. It should not be ignored. Obvious realities, obvious realities. We often ignore obvious realities, don't we? We would think, well, we would believe if we walked the earth. Don't be so quick to believe that. We're quick to ignore obvious realities. You know, one of the obvious realities of humanity right now is that Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback that ever played NFL football. Did you know that? You're not convinced, are you? <laughs> you're, you're confused and you're debating. You're in the crowd of confused and debating people. Is it Drew Brees? Is it Tom Brady? Is it, is it Peyton Manning? Is it uh, Bart Starr? Is it, right, you go around the list. But who, who, who won the most NFL championships as a quarterback? I don't like the guy either. <laughs> but we have a high capacity to ignore reality and to, to be deceived, don't we? That, that's, that's trivial. But what, what, what about those with a problem that everyone else sees but them? Everyone sees it. They're around any group of people for any length of time, and everyone sees the obvious reality of who they are, but they don't see it. We have a capacity to do that. What about a financial mess that requires changed habits? We get ourselves in a financial mess and we're, we're maxing out credit cards and we're spending more than we earn and, 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 and you can't see it and you get deeper and deeper in debt and, and, and you're oblivious to it. You're, you're thinking it's going to go away by itself without changing habits. What about a health issue that can't be ignored? Or what about this one, continuing destructive behavior, continuing destructing behavior and thinking things will change without doing something different. So just before we think that we wouldn't be like, we wouldn't be like the confused and the, the debating and that we would stake the obvious, I think we all have high capacity to ignore reality that's right in front of us and to reject truth. We do it in many different ways. Denial of the obvious. And here's the truth about Jesus. Listen, Jesus cannot be ignored. He cannot be ignored. You can try. He can't be ignored. He can't be avoided. It's hard to get away from Jesus. Some of you here today, you may have come in here and you've been trying to get away from Jesus, but your, your mama and your papa invited you to church or, or your great aunt invited you to church or your wife or your husband drug you here and, and you're trying to avoid Jesus, get away from Jesus, ignore Jesus. I don't want to do, have anything to do with Jesus, but Jesus cannot be ignored. He cannot be avoided. He's hard to get away from. 
And you can try to stay in the camp of the confused and the debating for, for a long time, but he's hard to ignore. You gotta make a stance, you gotta plant a flag. What do you think of Jesus? And here's what people will do. People will try to use philosophy to think their way around Jesus. That's what philosophy is. I'm gonna think my way around my life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use philosophy to think about the deep things of life, but I'm gonna think my way around Jesus. I was at Chick-fil-A yesterday eating Christian chicken and there were some non-Christians in the room philosophizing about, about religion and I was listening to my Reagan, but I was trying to listen because I was being pulled to this conversation. I'm like, oh, I wanna go sit down and talk to them. And they had all kind of crazy things to say, trying to ignore Christ. They were ignoring religion. But what they were doing is they were ignoring Christ. Christ cannot be ignored. So people will try to use philosophy to think their way around Jesus. People will use psychology to change their behavior instead of facing Jesus. I have so many bad habits and, and bad, bad, bad things in my life because of bad decisions that I make. And I'm going to use psychology as a way to change my behavior so I, will, I, will, I won't have to face religion or God or the reality of Jesus. People who try to ignore Jesus, some of them will self-medicate with relationships and substances to numb themselves to ignore Jesus. But Jesus stands alone. He stands alone. He stands out. His life has altered human history. He obviously is unlike any person who has ever walked the earth. Even so much that the Los Angeles Times editor said this about Jesus, if you can believe that. Will Jesus ever be surpassed? 1,900 years have passed, and his equal has not risen. This is not true of the world's other great ones. Every generation produces geniuses worthy to be compared with those who have gone before. It can be said of no one man, he stands alone. He has no rival, no equal, no superior. But this is true of Jesus. 1,900 years instead of diminishing his greatness, have accentuated it. Wow. Isn't that powerful? <laughs> 1,900 years passes on my life. I don't know who will ever remember me. 1,900 years have passed. And it hasn't diminished the greatness of Christ because you can't get rid of him. You can't get rid of Christ. And it wasn't because he was just a good teacher. You can't just be a good teacher and a good man and a, a good moral person and have that type of impact in human history. The very dating of our calendars, uh, B.C. and A.D., the way we tell time and manage our history is, be is because of Jesus Christ. So who will we be? Will we be the confused to question and debate? Or will we be the convinced who embrace the obvious? So the question we all have to live with is, what will we do with Jesus? And the first two groups, they, they confuse people. They question and debate, and they go in circles. They go in circles, but the convinced, they're starting to dance around some realities here. Hey, he's not like any other man. Look at the signs. Look at his words. Look at his impact. And that leads us to the third group, the contrary. The confused and the convinced, now the contrary. The contrary conspired to kill. Look at those who have hatred in their heart towards Jesus. Back to John 7, verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said to these contrary, hate-filled in their heart towards him, Pharisees, he says, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, the, these leaders, these, the Jews, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? What do they think of what Jesus said there? Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks, the Gentiles? The Greeks, the Gentiles? Does, does he intend to go there and teach the Gentiles? He obviously, he has no footing here amongst us Jews because we are the people of God. Does he intend to go away to the Gentiles and those are the ones that are going to receive him? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? The Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews had already made up their mind concerning Jesus. 
He was a threat, and he had to be dealt with. They, they weren't confused about him. They weren't debating about him. They knew who he was. They were willing, willfully rejecting him. And when they had an opportunity to free Jesus from being arrested or to free Barabbas, a known criminal, a murderer, who did they choose? Barabbas, crucify an innocent man. And the courts looked at Jesus and said, he's innocent. This is who you want? But the Pharisees were so hard-hearted, the Sanhedrin and the leaders were so hard-hearted, they ignored the obvious reality of Christ because of their hatred in their heart towards Christ. And they ordered officers to go arrest Jesus, and it was those same officers who were paralyzed by his words. And Jesus, listen, listen, Jesus turns to these hard-hearted leaders and makes a stunning statement of judgment against them. Jesus said, I will be with you a little while longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. And then he says, you will seek me. And you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Wow. What's Jesus saying there? He's speaking to the reality of eternal judgment separated from God forever. He's saying to these contrary, hateful, hearted men that are the leaders of Israel, he's telling them, because you are in this position of hardness of heart, there's going to come a time when you will try to seek me, but it will be too late. You will seek me and you will not be able to find me. You had time to be confused when I first came on the scene and you debated a little while and you figured out who I was and you saw my power and you didn't transition to the convinced but you transitioned to the contrary and you wanted my life and there will come a time when you will see who I am and you will know who I am and you will not be able to find me even though you seek me. That is a stunning judgment and before you think it's too harsh, what about those Pharisees? What did they see? What did they think of Jesus? If you think I'm, being, I'm paying the picture too dark of them, what did they think of Jesus? Jesus healed a demon-possessed man. And in Matthew 12, this is what they said of Jesus after he healed a man of demon oppression. It says, And a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people are amazed and said, can this be the son of David? These were the convinced. They saw the evidence, right? They're not confused anymore. Can this be the Messiah, the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, what did they say? It is only by Beelzebul, the power of Satan, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. They looked at the perfect goodness of God in the flesh and they equated him and his power to Satan. That's about as dark as you can get, calling good evil and evil good. And Jesus looks at them and says, this is the judgment. The judgment is, is that because of your hard heart and your blindness, there will come a time when you will try to seek me, but you won't find me. Because where I am coming, you cannot come. Wow. Wow hard-hearted and blind. You know, and we, we live in a time today, I just want to speak to this for a moment before we transition to the conclusion. We live in a time today where, where we have limitless access to information. Anything we want to know about in the seven hours a day that we're on the internet, we can know about it, can't we? We can pursue knowledge, we can study, we can pursue and have great knowledge of the beauty and the vast, vastest of the universe, but, but yet with all this knowledge at our fingertips, vast numbers of people do not pursue Christ. Vast numbers of people do not pursue Christ. They may not be like the Pharisees that are just actively against Christ and, and wanting to kill him and, and arrest him and, and obliterate him and, and, and hurt Christians and hate Christians. They may not be actively like the Pharisees, but they're just going about their life ignoring eternal realities they're not pursuing God or Christ. You know, I did a little research. How many churches do you think we have in Homa? 60? You're halfway there. Just in Homa, 112 churches. Just Homa, not Terrebonne Parish. Homa, 112 
churches. Now, I'm not saying that every church that is named a church is, is a Bible-believing, gospel-centered church, but there's 112 churches in Homa. Now, I just want to think about this for a second. The, the, the people who fill the pews in the 112 churches in Homa are believers. May not be believers in Jesus Christ, right? May not be true Christians, but they're believers in whatever is being taught there, right? So it's not like, it's not like the churches are being filled every Sunday with non-believers. You, you get an occasional non-believer who comes in. But what happens is, is that Christians just go from this church to that church to this church. We bounce around. We move around. And, and, and our church grows for six months. And then it declines for six months because people bounce around, right? That's what happens in church life. So I want you, to, want you to think about this. 112 churches. If only 10% of unchurched people started attending, and pers- attending church and they were attending church to pursue God, in those 112 churches, we would not have enough room to fill. This is 1,800 seats in this building. We'd have to have three services. All right, think about that. If only 10%. So think about the vast number of unchurched people that are out there busying their lives. What this tells us is this is a sobering reality of the number of people who are busy running in circles in their life but not running after Christ. And this is the truth of the Bible, of the message of the Bible is that there will come a time you, Jesus said, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I come, you cannot, where I go, you cannot come. It's the uncomfortable reality and doctrine of hell. And the prayer is, is that we would get outside these four walls and we would plead and we would beg and we would say, come, come, come receive Christ. Don't, don't come to the building to receive Christ, though you can and when you come here, but come receive Christ. Here's the gospel. Here's where peace and joy and forgiveness can be found. But tens of thousands of people in our community are going in circles, not pursuing Christ, and there may come a time when they'll want to see Christ, but it's too late. This judgment is the biblical reality of hell. One commentator says it like this. Hell itself is truth discovered too late. It is unrelieved bitterness under the destructive hand of God. It is eternal regret without remedy and remorse without hope. That's why there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Listen, hell is not where Christ is forgotten. It is where he is unavailable. You will seek me, but you will not find me. Hebrews 4, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You know, the truth is, if all these three groups here, as we're getting to the conclusion here, all three of these groups, the confused, the convinced, the contrary, all of them need to respond to Christ. Because now is the time. That was their time. They need to respond to Christ. And sandwiched between the confused and the contrary, sandwiched in between in the middle of this text that we've been going all around the middle. We've been going all around the middle, looking at the beginning from 25 to, to 40. And we went from, 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 40, from, from 40 to 52. We've been going all around these different groups, the, the confused, the convinced, and the contrary. And in the middle of that stands Christ. And he lifts his voice again in the middle of the temple. And this is what he says. He's crying out to all three groups. John 7, verse 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out the same way he did earlier where he proclaimed and he yelled. It's the same meaning. He yells. He screams. If anyone thirst, let him come to me. Confused people, come to me. I'm going to bring you clarity. You need to come to me. Convinced people, you're right. It's me. Come to me. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And is it just physical water? No. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Believe in Jesus. For as yet the Spirit had not been given on the last day of the feast. It's just so powerful what's happening here. Just Let's paint the picture as we, as we close this up. Jesus is, is, is in the temple. He's teaching, and we see these crowds coming. We see the three different groups, all that play here in this conversation. Confused, convinced, contrary, kill, arrest, kill. All this going on, Jesus stands up and says, Come to me if you are thirsty, and I will give you living water. It's the last day of the feast. What was the feast? 
the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And what was the celebration of the Feast of Booths all about? It was about the celebration, the memory of the Jews celebrating that the Lord protected them in the wilderness and they lived in tents for 40 years but they were protected they were fed and they were given water and on the last day of the feast that seventh day of the feast the priest would take water from the pool of Siloam and they would dip that water and they would make a procession to the temple and they'd have this water and as they were walking to the temple they'd get into the temple and they run walk seven times around the temple and they'd be they'd be saying and reciting Psalms 118:25 save us we pray O Lord O Lord we pray give us success and they're walking around that 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 altar inside the temple seven times and they have the water from the pool of Siloam and they're bringing it in and at the seventh time they'll pour the water out on the altar. And in the middle of that, Jesus stands up and he says, if you want true water, come to me. Don't miss the point. This water that's being poured out on the altar that, that, you know, no, I, Moses gave you water in the wilderness, but it wasn't Moses who gave you water. You're, commemor- you're commemorating what you think Moses did. Well, I want you to know that when Moses struck the rock, instead of speaking to it, I was the rock in the wilderness. I am living water. Don't miss the point. In the middle of that ceremony, in the middle of that pageantry, in the middle of the crowd, he says, I am the living water. No doubt Jesus is purposely contrasting the physical water and the everlasting water that he offers. He's crying out, don't miss the point. I am the rock that was struck, I will, and I will be struck again. But because of the striking that's going to come again, I will provide eternal water this time. Jesus says to the confused, come, come to me. He says to the convinced, come to me. He says to the cynical, those Pharisees, he says, he's speaking to them. It's their time. They can repent. They can turn. Come to me. And 700 years before Jesus stood in that temple and made that cry, 700 years before the prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 55, speaking of Christ, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. What's the prophet saying? He's saying there's a covenant coming, and it's coming through David. It's coming through Christ. And the one that came through David, the eternal son of God that stood in the middle of that temple, he says, come, just as the prophet said, come. He said to the cynical Pharisees, he says, you will seek me, and you will not find me, but now is the time for you to come. There will be a time when people will seek but cannot find Christ. And I love the last few verses here of Isaiah 55. And this is for all of us, no matter what category we find ourselves in, no matter what group we're in. Some of you here, you've been weary and you've been tired. You're a believer in Christ and you've been running to all the wrong wells, drinking all the wrong sources of satisfaction. And, and you're a believer and you've been convinced, but you've been chasing things that don't satisfy. Some of you here today, you're not a believer and you've been confused and questioning and debating. Well, today is your day to see Christ for who he is and to come to him. And you've been doing the same thing, chasing after waters that will not satisfy. And maybe you're here today and you're in that other category. And you're in the group that you've been hurt and hardened towards God and towards Christ. You've been cynical and contrary. Today is the day that if you will not harden your heart and if you will seek Christ, you will, can be filled with living waters, eternal life. What, that's what it means. Living waters means eternal life. It's not water like in the wilderness with Israel that will run out. Jesus is saying it's not about water. It's about me. It's about him. So whatever group you find yourself in, listen to what the prophet says. 700 years before the birth of Christ, 700 years before anyone could reject Jesus, The prophet says this about the Christ who was to come. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Amen. Would you bow your heads? If you're here today and you find yourself in any one of those three categories, today is your day. Today's your day. Now's the time. Call upon the name of the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Return to the Lord. And he will abundantly pardon. If you're here today and and you want to turn to Christ. You want to turn to Christ. You want to surrender to him. And you want to move from the category of the confused and the debating. And you are tired of ignoring Christ. And you want to say yes to him. You want to repent of your sins. And you see God for who he is. And you see your sin for what it is. An affront to a holy God. And you want to repent and confess your sins. And receive Jesus as the Lord of your life. If that's you today, would you lift your hand? Is there anybody here today? That's you. You want to respond to Christ. Anyone here today? Anybody? Anybody else? In your heart, in the quietness of your heart, respond to Christ. Receive Christ. And if that's you, we want to talk to you. We can talk to you after service. You can meet me up front. You can talk to those at the welcome desk. And you can tell them, hey, I I am confessing Christ today. I, I want to become a believer. And we can talk you through what it means to be a Christian. And we can help you navigate this journey. Maybe you're here today and and you're a believer, but you've been chasing after all the wrong things. And today is your day to repent and to come home and to say, I'm tired of chasing after those things. Today I am following Christ. I'm laying aside the sins that have so easily beset me, and I'm pursuing Christ with all of my heart. If that's you, today is your day. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would use it as only you can, to transform our lives, to make us more like you. For the unbeliever, it's the power of God unto salvation. And for the believer, it's the power of God for our sanctification. Lord, make us more like Christ. Lord, may we always run to Christ for true satisfaction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. I'll see you next week as we begin chapter 8.